Yeah, that's a, that's an absolute true story. Um, and the police told Janie on the phone. I would love to have heard the 911 call. Um, I wish I'd have gotten a recording of that because they told her, they said, when the policeman shows up, tell your husband to put the gun down. I'm like, I, by that time, because I was hacked by that time. Somebody was in my house, you know, and, and I was, I was going to shoot somebody. I'm walking up and down and uh, they're telling me to put the gun down. So, yeah. And I, when I was in youth ministry, I used to tell teenagers, you know, don't come wrap my house because if I hear somebody around at, I'm, I'm a jumpy dude. Um, if you, when some, having somebody standing in your front door, you know, That'll, that'll cause you to be jumpy and uh, to do some dumb things, believe me. Anyway, moving right along. Marriage and Divorce magazine, back in the 80s, um, wrote an article about a Harvard University study done here in the United States. And what they did was they, they discovered that the divorce rate... Now, this was back in the 80s, and I think the divorce rate is actually higher now. The divorce rate back in the, in the 80s was around um, one-third, so around 33%, one out of every three marriages. But listen to this. This is what was interesting about this study. They discovered that um, when the couple is married in a church ceremony, it drops to one out of 50 in a divorce. Okay? But it gets better. When a couple is married in a church ceremony, attend church together regularly, they pray together, they read the Bible together, the divorce rate drops to one out of every 1,105 marriages. That's the difference God makes in your marriage. Quite honestly... Quite honestly, it is foolish. It is stupid not to have God in our marriage. And so what we've been trying to do is figure out that God created marriage. God wants us to have marriage. God wants us to be successful in our marriage. But what we do is we go out and we try to do things on our own and we fall miserably. And we could, we could spend the rest of time telling our stories about how we've messed up, right? Every one of us messes up marriage. So we're all in the same boat. Those of you who are single, you will mess up marriage. So just get used to that idea and you can share your story in a few years. When we do this marriage series again, you can be the ones that talk about being dumb so that the rest of us don't have to. The problem is, is that marriage takes work, a great deal of work. And, and it takes three to make marriage work. Most of the thing it takes two. It actually takes three. It takes a husband, it takes a wife, and it takes God. Now, have you ever seen those tripods that you, that you use, that you hold a camera up with? Why are they not called a bipod? What happens to a bipod? What happens to a stool with only two legs? It falls rather easily. And that's exactly what we're talking about. If you have a husband, you have a wife, but you don't have God, you're going to fall over. You're going to mess up. But if you have God, He provides the stability. And if you think about it as a triangle with God at the top and a husband here and a wife here, as the husband moves closer to God, as the wife moves closer to God, what happens to the distance between the husband and the wife? It gets smaller as well. This only makes sense. It's logical. So we need to figure out what God has to say about marriage. God says, I'll take the husband and the wife, and I'll make them one. Um, this comes all the way back in the beginning. God did, developed this idea of marriage, and so he wants, he wants to make it work. And I honestly don't know how people make marriages work without God. Many don't. Many fail. And I read that one secular magazine said that over half, listen to this, over half, over 50% of all non-Christian men will have an affair during the, the lifetime of their marriage and just under half of all non-Christian women. I'd call that an epidemic. And we need to figure out how to stem the tide. Well, so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the stages of, affair, of an affair so that we can figure out how to affair-proof our marriages. We'll look at the stages. We'll look at if you know somebody or if you've been through something where, where you are out there, how you come back 
how you reclaim your marriage. But then the last part, we're going to spend the majority of the time on how to um, make sure that you affair-proof yourself, you affair-proof your spouse, and you affair-proof your lifestyle. Those are the things that we're going to look at today. So let's look first at the stages of an affair. The process of immorality is actually explained in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This is from the Living Bible. You have this on your listening guide. Temptation is the pull of a person's own evil thoughts and wishes. These evil thoughts lead to evil actions. There in that last sentence, I want you to circle two words. Thoughts and actions. Thoughts and actions. Affairs don't happen overnight. People don't just fall into immorality, um, especially committed Christians. Even the proverbial one-night stand doesn't just happen. There, there is a process that happens that you go through. You've been thinking things. You've been setting things up in your mind. And that's what leads to the downfall. You don't have a moral life one day and then have an immoral life another day. There's a process that's, that, that you go through that leads you from where you're close to God to where you're very far from God if you're a committed Christian. Well, stage one uh, in this process is called accepting sinful thoughts in your mind. Accepting sinful thoughts in your mind. Have you ever seen those, like Survivor? We watch Survivor. My kids get into that. They like the immunity challenge and all that stuff. But when they dump them out on these islands, wherever they are, one of the first things they do is they have to try to make fire, especially if, you know, there's some place where the, the climate's kind of cool. And so they try to make fire to stay warm. Well, almost all of them get a stick, you know, and they start rubbing that stick. And they'll get some grass, and most of them get blisters on their hands before. What happens... What is the first thing that, that, that happens that gives you a sign that there's about to be fire there? What, what starts coming up? Smoke. It doesn't necessarily mean there's fire. It means that there's, the conditions are right for fire to happen. You can think of that in this situation. Smoke is when, that, when the thought gets in your mind and you begin to dwell on that thought. Satan plants a seed and you say, oh, I'm just daydreaming. I'd never do that. That's a bunch of bull. That's a theological term for you, by the way. That's a bunch of bull. Because if you lose the battle in your mind, you will lose the battle. That's where it starts, is in your mind. You've got to learn to control it. As a Christian, I am still going to have sexual thoughts. I am still going to have temptation. Temptation is not a sin. It's what you choose to do with it. Now, when I have these sexual thoughts that come into my mind, I have one of two choices. I can choose to dwell on that, and it causes problems in my marriage. Or I can choose to refocus that attention on my wife and think about the things that attract me to my wife. And that builds a stronger marriage. It's, it only makes sense. If I think of someone else other than my wife, it is going to push me away. If I, if I challenge those thoughts into her, then it's going to draw me closer to her. And I guarantee you she'll notice. And it makes a big difference when I do that. Now, when you start to have these thoughts, rather than fight it, because I actually want you to write this down. I didn't put this on your listening guide. Whatever you resist persists. Whatever you resist persists. It's very difficult to fight a feeling. So what we're going to do is we're not going to fight it. We're going to replace it. We're going to refocus it. We're going to challenge or, or, or channel that energy that was going on in that thought into our mates. And if we'll begin to do that, it'll, it'll take us a long ways um, to helping our marriage. So put a filter in your mind because your thought life is where Satan starts. Now, fortunately, this is the point at which it is the easiest to avoid an affair. But the problem is most of us, Christians especially, we don't get serious about it at this stage. We think, oh, it's just a thought. It's not a big deal. It is a very big deal. And if we'll take it seriously, we can cut it off before we ever get in any trouble. Stage two. Stage two is non-physical emotional involvement. Now, you had the smoke, and what makes, what makes this lighter so effective? 
the spark is what I have to have in order to ignite the fuel that's in here. And when the spark works and when the fuel is coming, then I begin to have fire. But the spark is the first thing. So that's what I want you to think about at this stage. There is a spark. Whenever they're doing that fire, they have to blow on it. Whenever they're doing the stick trying to make the fire on Survivor, they blow on it. And eventually the conditions are right. It combusts. But it has to have a spark first before it combusts. Now, um, adultery begins in the head long before it gets into bed. And if you get to a truck stop or a motel and you give in to sexual temptation, um, you've been setting yourself up because of the thoughts that have been going on in your mind for a long time. It doesn't just happen right there. Just to assume that a man and a woman are in the same room and that there's no touching going on so that we're okay uh, is, is wrong. <laughs> because God made men men, God made women women, and there are sparks that fly all of the time. Now, just because you see somebody and, and immediately you think, oh, I, they're attractive to me, that doesn't mean sin. But it's what you choose to do with that thought afterwards that can cause it to be sin. Um, there's overt, covert, whatever kind of signals going back and forth whenever a man and a woman are in the room. And we'll talk about how to, to uh, uh, protect yourself from that in just a minute. Here's a key. This ought to be a red flag that, that goes off. If somebody that you work with or somebody that you're around on a consistent basis to whom you are not married... Somebody of the opposite sex begins to fish for compliments or begins flattering you, especially if they're not flattering their spouse. If they say something nice about you in front of a crowd and all they do is criticize their spouse in front of a crowd, red flags, run. I'm not saying that there's anything going on then, but, but the sparks are ready to fly. And you need to get out of that situation as quickly as possible. Now, with unbelievers, there's very little time spent at this stage. Because unbelievers, there's... there's once the signals are there, then they're ready to move on to the next stage, physical involvement. And, and, but with Christians, there's a lot of game playing that goes on here. And we say, well, there's no physical contact, so I'm okay. I have had friends and I have known people who said, I have not done anything wrong. I've known people that have even written love letters to someone who is not their spouse. And they looked me in the eye and said, I did nothing wrong. I'm sorry. That is not what the Bible says. If you are flirting with someone who is not your spouse, then you are tempting them in ways that you cannot righteously fulfill. And God says, don't do it. Get away from it. Stage three, physical involvement. Well, you move from the spark, you move from, from the, the smoke to you got full stage flame. Now, let me ask you something. Whenever you see a, a house that is burned down, whenever you see a house that's burned down, what is the one thing that's usually left standing? The toilet. <laughs> the chimney is usually what's left standing, um, but we'll go with toilet in a minute. We'll use that. We'll work that in somehow. When you're driving down the road and you're out in the country, usually the last thing standing is the chimney. You want to know why? Because inside the chimney, the fire is warm, it is good, and it, does, it has benefit for the family. But when that spark flies outside of the chimney... Outside of, of the fireplace, it causes devastation, it causes destruction, and the only thing that's left is the fireplace. Here's the correlation. Inside marriage, sex is great. It is God's invention. But when it gets outside of the bounds of marriage, it causes all kinds of destruction. And when you're at this stage, physical involvement, when you're hugging, when you're kissing, when you're touching, when you have intercourse, when you're at this stage, you do not get out of that without doing damage to other people. Um, one of my best friends, he was in a, in a relationship where he said all he did was kiss someone that wasn't his wife. Do you think that made his wife feel any better? 
that all they did was kiss? They didn't have sexual intercourse? No, there was devastation. And now my, my friend has to answer questions from his teenage children. Dad, how come back there you had this thing going on with somebody other than mom? Personally, I don't want to have to answer those questions. The best way to, to not have to answer them is to steer clear of the situation in the first place. And then the, the fourth stage is rationalize the affair. You hear people say, oh, I'm only human. Well, being human is an excuse. You, you rarely hear a robber that breaks into somebody's house and kills someone saying, oh, <laughs> I'm only human. That wouldn't wash in the court of law, would it? Well, neither does it wash. You say, I'm only human. I've only got these sexual urges. I, it's God's fault for making me that way. Well, that's a bunch of bull. There's that th- theological term again. Here's some excuses I've heard. Just one more time. Oh, I've heard this one. If my wife or husband only met my needs, I wouldn't do this. Now, at some level that may be true, but that's not an excuse for you to go and have an affair. There's never a logical, biblical reason to do something other than what God tells you to do. I had one dad tell me. This dad's been a Christian for many years. He blamed it on his daughter-in-law that his son had an affair. No, that, that doesn't work. I've heard people say, he or she needs me. I've heard them say, it won't happen again. Or I've heard them say, God will forgive us. And when I hear that last one, I want to say the audacity of you to presume upon the grace of God. Because the Bible says God forgives those who repent. That means change. And if you're doing it over and over and saying, oh, God will forgive me, God will forgive me, God will forgive me. No, He doesn't. God doesn't have to forgive you. The condition of forgiveness is a broken heart before God. And you can tell when somebody, you know, when your children, will you forgive me? Yeah. There's not a bit of forgiveness that goes on there. And that's what we're acting like when we say, God's going to forgive me for this. You're like a little kid going, forgive me. And God says, no, I don't, because I look at your heart. I don't care how much money you put in the offering. I don't care how many times you go to church. If your heart's not right, I don't forgive you. Because the forgiveness cost him his son. It is serious business with God. He offers it to those who are brokenhearted before Him. Okay, well, if you're at this stage, or if you know somebody at this stage, then we need to come back to God. And here's how you come back to God. Number one, you acknowledge the sin. If you're at rationalizing, you're not ready to come back. Because you need to look at, if you have a friend, or if you're in this, um, and you fall in this area, look at, at Psalm 51. This is the psalm when David was repenting, when he changed his heart. He was brokenhearted before God after he'd had um, committed adultery with Bathsheba. Here's what he says. O loving and kind God, have mercy. Take away the awful stain of my transgressions. Cleanse me from this guilt, for I admit my shameful deed. It haunts me day and night. It is against you that I have sinned. Stop rationalizing. Stop making excuses. Stop blaming other people. Confess. It is sin. It's not an indiscretion. It's not an affair. We've, we've cleaned up adultery and we call it an affair. The Bible calls it adultery. It is an abomination before God because it destroys lives. It's the fire, the spark getting out of the fireplace and it destroys lives. The reason God tells you no in this area is to protect you and your family, to provide a better future for them. Counselors, offices, churches are filled with people who've been destroyed because their parents did some really dumb things. Um, especially in this area of adultery. Number two, end the relationship immediately. Um, if you've got a friend that's in this situation, tell them they've got to get out of, the, out of it immediately. Because here's the deal. We generally drift away from God gradually. And when you realize you're a long ways from God, don't try to come back gradually. 
Come back immediately because He's the one you need to give you the power to make it through the day and to make it through some of the temptations. Move quickly to get back in fellowship with God. Quit cold turkey. Now, number three, do whatever it takes to avoid all contact with that person from now on. All contact. Make a decision and stick with it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, The wrong desires that come into your life aren't anything new and different. Many others have faced exactly the same problems before you, and no temptation is irresistible. God will show you how to escape. God says He will never put more on you that he puts, than what He puts in you to bear it out. Alright? God says, No temptation is so much that you can't handle it with My Spirit working on the inside to give you the power to resist or to get out of that situation. The person who says, I couldn't help myself, is lying if they're a Christian. Because you've got the Spirit of God living inside of you who says, I will give you the strength to bear up under any temptation. The problem is we don't obey God and we don't draw near to Him. God will show you how to escape. Well, one of the ways to escape, if you've, if you've been in an affair, have no contact with that person whatsoever. If you need to change jobs, change jobs because your family is more important. And I guarantee you that's a first step in proving yourself to your spouse that you're serious about this if you change jobs. If you need to change churches, if you need to move cities, get out of there so that you can begin building back what God um, has in store for you in your family and build that, that um, trust back up in your family. Now... Let's look at how you affair-proof yourself, how you affair-proof your spouse, and how you affair-proof your lifestyle. This is the positive aspect of it. Let's choose right now. Number one, commit myself or commit to God's way. Commit to God's way. You're choosing to go God's way. Several weeks ago, we talked about how to, how to succeed at the game of life. And one of the things we said is you've got to choose to go God's way. You've got to use God's roadmap. Well, what is God's roadmap? Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. You do what the Bible says. You decide in advance. You say, Lord, from here on out, I'm going to live according to your standard. I heard a, a, a debate last night where they were talking about, is there a standard of truth? The lady who was saying there is no standard of truth has no morals because she has no foundation upon which to base those morals. The man who was saying, yes, there is a standard of truth, said it is, it is right here. It's black and white that there is a standard of truth. They were having this big argument. I had to turn it off because it was driving me nuts listening to the circular reasoning that was going on about um, how every religion has good points in it and every religion can lead you to God. That's not what the Bible says. And that leads to chaos. There is chaos in any home, in any business, in any church where there is no foundation of truth. Um, so commit to God's way. And so in order to uh, fair-proof yourself, you need to stop and you need to examine your attitude towards adultery. And you need to ask yourself this question. Is there any circumstance where I believe adultery is acceptable? Ask yourself that question. If there is, you need to get some help quickly. Because what you've got to do is say, no, absolutely not under, under any circumstances will I be unfaithful to my spouse. You draw that line and say, I used to tell teenagers, the time to determine how far is too far when you're, when you're in a dating relationship is before you get in the back seat of the car, before you get to the motel. You say, this far, no further, because it dishonors my body, it dishonors my parents, it dishonors my God, and it dishonors my future spouse. You decide beforehand. Well, you do the same thing with adultery. You say, I'm deciding right now. No way, I don't care what happens, that is not an option. And look at what God's standard is, Song of Solomon. By the way, if you want to just do, add a little spice to your marriage, tonight, you go in the bedroom, put the kids to bed, lock the door, you go in and you read Song of Solomon. 
The Bible is explicit about God created sex and He wants us to enjoy that in our marriage. Look what this, this one verse says. Close your heart to every love but mine. Hold no one in your arms but me. That's pretty practical, isn't it? If I hold no other woman in my arms but my wife, then I'm not going to have a problem with this issue. God's standard is one man, one woman for life. Commit yourself to that and then tell your spouse, I am committed to you. Tell them over and over again. I don't care what you said on your wedding day. Actually, I do. But that's not good enough. It's not good enough to say I love you on my wedding day or I do on my wedding day. And I, if it ever changes, I'll tell you. I have a friend who says that all the time. I just want to smack him. You dip. You could be having a lot better life if you just tell your woman that you love her and you're committed to her. I'm all for that. So you need to tell your spouse, I do. I bought Janie a little um, Precious Moments deal several years ago that says, I still do. And it has, has the little guy holding his, you know, his wedding ring up and pointing at it and says, I still do. And every now and then I'll pull it out and I'll show it to her and I'll say, I still do. I still do. Um, by the way, next week we're going to have a renewal of vows where you're going to get to stand up and you're going to get to say, I still do. I still do. Um, it, we did this a couple years ago and it's a powerful time to remind your spouse that you're committed to them. I still do. Um, Alright, the second step is maintain your marriage. Maintain your marriage. 1 Corinthians 7.5 says, Do not cheat each other of normal sexual intercourse or you will expose yourselves to the obvious temptation of Satan. The Bible says that in marriage, sexual relationship is actually a spiritual responsibility to your mate. It is a spiritual responsibility. There's a physical side, but there's a spiritual side. There are a lot of needs that your mate has that you have that you could fulfill inside or outside of marriage. But this is one area. When you got married, you said you signed a contract. You said, I'm going to look only to you to meet the physical needs in this area. It is a, it is a physical and a spiritual responsibility. And, and if your partner won't meet those needs, who's going to? If you've said, this is the only person that's going to meet my needs. Um, it's a spiritual deal. There are two principles taught in 1 Corinthians 7. One is the principle of immediate response. I have gotten more heat over this idea than just about anything else I've talked about in marriage. The, the principle of immediate response. Because if you study this passage, it says we're to, we're to give our bodies to, to our spouse because we no longer own our bodies. Our spouse does. And so I heard one guy say that means that a headache is not a legitimate excuse. Now, I said last week that a man would rather clip hedges in the freezing rain than, than to make love to an unresponsive wife or a wife who's responding out of duty. All right? Now, that, that's true. So when my wife and I are talking about the sexual thing, if she's not feeling well, I don't have any problem saying, babe, let's do this another time. But you know what we do? We set a date. And we stick to that. I mean, if it's one night, she says, babe, how about tomorrow? And I say, baby, that's great. But then you don't get to come back 800 days in a row and have a headache. Okay, that's, that's just sticking your, your um, spouse out on a limb where they are susceptible to temptation. And, and so the idea is when your spouse says they have a sexual need, you need to fulfill it as quickly as possible. If you're sick, if you're throwing up, they'll understand. Um, but just don't be doing that for the rest of your life till Jesus comes. That, that doesn't work. And so the principle of immediate response, the second one is the principle of a regular habit. Because the Bible says that we should be, um, we should be having sexual relations with our spouse. We shouldn't withhold our bodies from one another. We should do that regularly. The only time that it's acceptable not to have sexual relations with your wife if, or your spouse is if, if there's mutual agreement 
And then it says, for prayer, for extended times of prayer. Other than that, you're not supposed to deprive one another. And I hear all the time folks doing it when they have fights with their spouse. Well, I'm just not going to give him what he wants. Well, okay, but what you're doing is you're driving a wedge and you're just setting him out on an island where, where Satan is going to jump on that and throw temptations like crazy in his way. So, realize those principles. Immediate response and regular habit. Um, you need to maintain your marriage, and that's what it means. The greatest marriage insurance you can have is a spouse that's fulfilled and happy at home. If you don't provide a magnet for your spouse at home, Satan will make sure that there's a magnet somewhere out there that will draw their attention and draw them away from you. Proverbs 15, 5 and, uh, 15, hello. Proverbs 5, 15 and 18 says, Drink from your own well, my son. Be faithful and true to your wife. Let her charms and breasts satisfy you. Let her love alone fill you with delight. Bible's real explicit here. Let your wife satisfy you. Part of the problem, especially in our society, in our marriages, is we compare our spouse to some image that we see on TV or to someone else's spouse. I mean, one of the reasons that pornography is out for a Christian is because there are no tens in the world. Talk about airbrush. Talk about all the different things that are going on in that situation. That is not normal. There's no one who's a ten. Everybody has bad breath in the morning. Everybody has messed up hair. Everybody has issues. So get over that and quit comparing your spouse to anybody else. The right one for you is right in front of you. And you can have a wonderful marriage, a wonderful sex life, if you'll pour energy into that relationship instead of setting your mind on things that are immoral. Um, and, and one of the things we can do is we can say to our spouse, my wife said this to me, she said, if you're ever going to have a great lover, it's going to be me. I'm going to become that person. It's like, whoo yeah, me too. I want, to be, I want to be the lover for you. And that, that, that creates a bond between us. When I know that she wants to be the one of my dreams, um, and I want to be the man of her dreams, and that, that pours tons of positive energy into your marriage. Um, number three, third thing you need to do to affair-proof yourself, your spouse, and your lifestyle is guard your mind. And this is a huge one, gang. If we were to project up on this screen... All of the thoughts we've had in the last week, most of us would be very uncomfortable with that, wouldn't we? I know I would. Um, have you ever been praying or you've been in church, you've been something, just the craziest thing comes into your mind? Just you're like, whoa, where'd that come from? Some type of temptation? Well, Satan does that. And a lot of times, the reason he does that is because you've given him opportunity through some TV show you've watched or some movie you've watched or some some place you've been and the things they've been talking about. You've set yourself up for temptation because that thought will come back into your mind. And we've got to guard our minds because that's where Satan starts. Um, what you do with that thought is your choice. If you say, no, I'm not going to do anything with that. I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm not going to meditate on it. Then you have not sinned. Well, how do you do that? Second Timothy 2.22 Turn your back on lustful desires and give your uh, positive attention to goodness, integrity, love, and peace in company with those who approach the Lord in sincerity. All right, I said this before. The key to overcoming temptation is not to resist it, but to replace it. What you resist persists. We said that a while ago. Don't resist, but refocus. Instead of fighting and resisting, refocus. So you change the channels. You get up. You read a book. You turn the TV channel. Walk away from the crowd that's telling nasty jokes. You refocus. One time I was talking to a man, and, and his wife was actually having an affair. He knew about it. He was trying to put the marriage back together. He would come into my office at least once a week, and he would say to me, he'd look me in the eye and he says, you're the only one who's telling me what God tells me to do. 
Everyone else in my life is telling me to do what I want to do. Go out and have an affair to get back at her. He said, you're the only one, the lone voice. And what's happening is those people are actually trying to destroy his life. They wouldn't, they wouldn't consciously come out and say that. But what they're doing, anytime you give advice that's, that's opposite of God's, you are doing things that tear people down rather than build them up. And so you've got to turn your back on those things and focus on, on uh, good things. So you replace your, those thoughts in your mind. As Satan gives you your thoughts, you, um, you replace those things. Now, you've heard the saying that an idle mind is the devil's playground. Have you heard that saying before? I think it's pretty true. And by the way, is your mind ever more idle than when we were watching TV? You are not being proactive. You're watching whatever comes on the screen. I mean, that's why they call it the idiot tube. Because you're not doing anything. You can sit there and veg out for hours. Now, I want you to think about... Now, just assume... i got some CDs up here. Just assume that this is, this is a CD player. Now, if this CD is sitting still, and, and let's say I have some salt here, and I pour salt on top of the CD, does the salt stay? Sure it does. If that CD, however, is moving, if it's doing what it was designed to do, and I pour salt on it, what happens? It scatters. It flies off. That's the same principle if your mind is in tune with something over here. You can't dwell on this other thing. I saw this happen one time when I was in college. Um, a guy walked up to my roommate who's one of the purest men I've ever met in my life. He's a pastor today. And he showed him a pornographic image. I didn't know what was going on. I just looked over and he did that. And Brian immediately, first of all, he goes, oh, no. And he covers his eyes. And, and the dude stayed there for like a minute and a half. I'm like, man, he's dead. He just had a heart attack. And then, then he takes his hands down and he goes, I'm okay now. I'm like, what in the world? And he said, I had to get rid of that image. And so he said, I started quoting all of the verses that I could think of, all the Scripture verses. And he said, I don't remember that image. And I was like, really? And he goes, I don't. One of the purest men I've ever met. I'm like, man, that's powerful. He refocused. Rather than dwell on the image and let it get an imprint, a negative in his mind that he could call up whenever or that Satan could call up whenever, he replaced it. Um, I've talked to teenagers many times about this. If somebody says to you, think of the number nine. If I get the board over there and I draw number nine over there, Wes, just go over and draw number nine. There's a, there's a marker there on the table. Look at this number nine. I want you just to stare at this number nine. Wes is going to make a big old honking nine on the board. And I, I want you to think about the number nine. Okay, you got it? Oh, very good. You can tell he's a school teacher. You did that so well. Now, everybody keep looking at that number and don't think of the number nine. Do not think of that number nine. Don't think of how you form the circle and then you come down. Don't think of N-I-N-E that Wes wrote out there. Don't think of it. What are you thinking about? Seven, there you go. Exactly. That's the principle of replacement. So, Amanda's done something like this before. She knew what I was, I was doing. I was tempting you to look at and think about the number nine. The only way not to think of the number nine is to put something else in there. Real quick example. Think of the number 1,200. Divide that by four. I know, it takes a while. Got a calculator. Somebody tell me what you got. 300. Multiply that by two. Multiply that by three. 1,800. In that process, did you think of the number nine? No, because your mind was busy on something else. That's the principle of replacement. And if we learn it, Satan has one less uh, tool against us. Now, 2 Timothy 4, 5 says, Keep your head in all situations. Romans 13, 14 says, Don't think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Why? Because it starts with a thought. 
If Satan can get in your mind and get a foothold there, then he can destroy you. What you think about ends up becoming action. Now, number four. Minimize the opportunity to be tempted. Minimize the opportunity to be tempted. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, So be careful if you're thinking, I'd never behave like that. Let this be a warning to you, or you too may fall into, into sin. You need to be aware of the kinds of situations that tempt you. With me, temptation comes when I'm physically exhausted. When I'm refreshed, when I've been spending my time with God, temptation's not that big a deal. But when I'm exhausted, I find it very difficult to fight. You probably understand what I'm talking about. When you're sick, when you're tired, when you're lonely. Um, those are the times that temptation is going to come to you the most. And you've got to figure that out and you've got to figure out ways to combat it. When you're in that situation, stop and pray right on the spot. Ask God to help you. There's a young man who came to his pastor and he said, Pastor, I have a problem. The pastor said, what's the problem? He said, every night my girlfriend and I are going too far physically. And he says, well, tell me about it. He says, well, every night when we pull up to her house, we sit in the car and we start kissing. And before we know it, we've gone too far physically. And the pastor said, okay, well, I know how you handle that. He said, tomorrow night when you pull up in front of the parents' house, he said, I want you to stop, grab her hand, and I want you to pray and say, Lord God, please protect us from this immorality that we're about to commit. And the young man goes, no way, that would ruin everything. And the pastor said, exactly. You've got to decide if you want to defeat this or not. If you're going to keep putting yourself in the same situation where you fall down over and over, you're not going to get better. That's insanity to expect a different result. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good behavior or good character. People who condone adultery, affairs, immorality... They talk about lust, they tell nasty jokes, and encourage each other to do immoral things are not your friends. We already said that. They're trying to destroy your life. Now, the Bible says to avoid them, not because you think you're too good. Listen to this, this is a key. The reason you avoid people that pull you down is not because you think you're too good. It's because you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You are not powerful enough to be in that situation where people are constantly um, begging you to have an affair. None of us can handle that type of pressure. So we need to surround ourselves with faithful friends. The most faithful friends we have ought to be the ones that are most faithful to their marriages. Because that will, that will encourage us. Number five, maintain a proper relationship with the opposite sex. Most affairs start between couples who get to know each other. One spouse gets attracted to another spouse, or they start with family members, or they start with co-workers. Um, if I'm not around somebody chances are 100% that I'm not going to be tempted to have some relationship with them. <laughs> Does that not make sense? If I don't see somebody, I'm never tempted. It's the people that I'm around on a constant basis that I've got to be very careful uh, around. Ephesians 5.3 says, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Don't send mixed messages to people around you. One of the quickest ways to... to to turn off the, the signal, besides doing the prayer thing. I actually did that one time. young lady had her hand running up my leg. I'd never had that happen to me before. This is when I was, before I was married. And I didn't know what to do. My mind was racing, and I grabbed her hand. I'm not kidding you. I grabbed her hand, and I said, let us pray. And she goes, what? And I'm like, oh, and I said that. I said those words. Oh, God, we were about to sin big time. Please forgive us. Dude, she moved over on that side of the car. It was... I couldn't have done any better if I'd have had a bucket of cold ice water to pour down her back, chilling her out. She didn't talk to me the rest of the way home. I didn't have to walk her door, man. She was out the door. She was slamming the front door. And I was like, whew, that works. 
Now, uh, <laughs> um, one of the best ways other than that, other than praying or having a bucket of cold water, is to talk about your spouse. If you're in a situation with someone of the opposite sex and they flatter you or they're look, you start talking about, you know, my wife has the most beautiful blue eyes. My brother told me one time, he goes, man, I bet you just fell into those eyes and never came out. I said, you're right. And when I tell somebody else about that, it just, it, it reinforces my marriage. Talk about your spouse. Talk about the good things. Don't start, don't dump all the bad stuff because that's going to give you, that's going to give Satan more ammunition against you. Talk about the good stuff about your spouse. Um, number six, and this is a big one. This, this is what we're finishing with. Magnify the consequences. Magnify the consequences of committing adultery. Minimize the benefits. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season, but it does not last. In Proverbs it says, The man who commits adultery is an utter fool, for he destroys his own soul. I love the Bible, man, because it doesn't pull any punches. It says if you commit adultery, you're a fool, because you're going to destroy your soul. Adultery will cost a man all he has. See, if, when you get to stage one, when it's very first happening, stage one of an affair, you need to ask yourself, will it be worth it? And you need to say, uh-uh. And you need to start listing all of the consequences. My family. Can you imagine my son coming up to me? Dad, how come you're no longer a pastor? Well, it's because I messed up, son. I don't want to have that conversation. I don't want my brothers and my sister and my parents to look me in the eye and say, what happened? I don't want that to happen. And when you start thinking about the, the consequences and you make them real big, you put them in bold letters and remind yourself that it destroys families, it destroys marriages, I could lose my career over this deal. Then the benefits look a whole lot less. You minimize the benefits. What? You're going to have, you're going to have a, something that, that might last 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes and destroy your whole lifetime of work? It is not worth it. So maximize the consequences. And I've heard people say, you know, well, I've committed an affair and God didn't do anything. Hear me. God does not settle all His accounts in 30 days. Just because you've gotten away with it doesn't mean you're going to get away with it. It will come back and bite you and haunt you somewhere down the line. Because you are going against God's stated plan for your life. Bottom line, I used to get this, this magazine called Bottom Line. And it's printed by Boardroom Reports. And it prints for executives. For those in the business world. It is not a Christian magazine. It's how to make more money. Well, they had an article called um, How to Make Your Marriage Last Forever. And the last thing says, I thought this was interesting, non-Christian magazine about how to succeed in the business world. It says, be faithful. Faithfulness is the triumph of culture over human nature. Adultery doesn't work. It creates distance. It destroys trust and fails to solve the underlying problems that led to adultery in the first place. That's a huge line to me in a non-Christian magazine. It destroys trust and fails to solve the underlying problems that led to adultery in the first place. Don't do it. Focus on your marriage instead. Take your cards and on the back, I want to challenge you. We've challenged folks to do something every week. And here's what I challenge you to do. I want you to write on the back, I choose God's way. If you're willing to make that choice, write that down. I choose God's way. 